starting again in our, our series of messages working through the, the Gospel of John. Um, this, this return is going to take us through Easter. So we're going to be studying the Gospel of John through Easter. Uh, in the back, I believe uh, Maria or Jeannie back there, somebody has got a study guide. Oh, somebody's got one right here in the front. Uh, if you see one around, pick it up. Uh, if you were like me and you said, this year, you know, I'm going to study God's Word a little more intentionally. But I sure would like some help. Uh, so there you go. Uh, printed some out. If there's no more back there, I can print some. We can print some in the office and bring to you, mail to you, whatever we need to do. Uh, you just let us know. Uh, we'll be glad to enable that in you. And, and if you're not going to use it, don't pick one up. Leave it for somebody who's going to use one. They don't like pick it up because it's like a brochure because it's not. Uh, but I do hope they're all gone and we have to print up a whole bunch more. So uh, I thank you for that. You may wonder why I chose the Gospel of John. Uh, why would we spend so much time going through one book of the Bible? Because uh, we spent a large portion of last year, and we're going to spend a big chunk of this year going through it. Uh, well, if you came to faith, or you, you were new in your faith, or anything else, or you were coming back to your faith, and you asked me, hey, Pastor, uh, I, I want to read the Bible. Like, where do I start? I, would al- I will always say, Gospel of John. And when you finish it, Go back to the beginning and read it again, like like because there's going to be something you missed in there, and you might even want to read it a third time because it's there's a lot in the Gospel of John, and and it I believe it it connects better than any of the other Gospels I believe to the Old Testament, to 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 God Jesus being the Son of God. Actually, that's John's whole purpose for writing. I mean, he even says in there that I'm writing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's that's the whole purpose in writing the whole thing. So, so that's where I always send people. And John, you see, he writes from a unique place. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was actually one of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, so he had a kind of an insider's perspective. Just like, just like uh, your best friend would tell stories about you that nobody else would know, even people who, who knew you pretty well. Like your best friend would, would know you in a different way. And, and so John, the gospel writer, when he wrote this, he wrote it uh, with a, certainly a different, with a much more personal flavor, if you want to use that word, to the whole thing. But not only does he tell it a different way, the story of Jesus, he tells a different story. Actually, uh, theologians say, people who study the scriptures say 90% of the Gospel of John is new to, the, is unique to the Gospel of John. It's not in the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, which kind of tell the same story, more or less, the Gospel of John is different. 90% of it is unique to it. The Gospel of John is three years of Jesus' ministry, and that's it. But in those three years, he actually only talks about like 30 days of the ministry. Like, like it's kind of scattered out, a day here and a day there, but it's only 30 days of three years that he covers. And in fact, the first ten chapters, which we've already looked at, we looked at last year, the first ten chapters cover all three years. So it's the last ten chapters cover like the last week of Jesus' life. So you can see how like the, there's a lot in that last week of Jesus' life that John wants us to spend time with. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of this new year. Uh, but, but today's message happens kind of in that between time. You know, every story, every story that's worth reading anyway, has like an arc to it. You know, it has like, a, has like a, the energy's building and the excitement in the story and everything. And then it gets to a point of, of tension, like when you're like really worried, okay, is, is the hero going to win out, right? In the Gospel of John, we are entering that tension phase of the story arc, right? In the Gospel of John. And so the rest of the story is going to be how it plays out. So that's why the, the Gospel of John, I believe, is, is truly unique. 
because it tells it like you would tell a story of a friend or a close friend to people who didn't know him. Uh, the gospel writer, he wants us to know, to understand the humanity of Jesus, but also that Jesus was the Son of God. Like the real guy Jesus was the Son of God. That's what he's trying to communicate. My best friend was the Son of God. The story is, is building, and he, he constructs it, you might say, around two sets of seven. Seven miracles and seven statements. The seven miracles, which we actually today we cover the last of the seven miracles, which are signs. He calls them signs. They point, just like any sign, a road sign, it points to something else, like curve ahead. It's telling you there's something coming, right? So that's what these signs are. Miracles, they, they were on purpose. They were intentional that he put these in only, no others. Like the first one was he, when Jesus turned the water to wine. Then he healed the, the government official's son from afar away, right? And then, then he healed the man who was born lame. And then he fed 5,000. And then he healed a blind man. And then finally, the one we're going to look at today in chapter 11, where he, rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead. These seven signs all pointed to who Jesus was. They pointed to something that the Old Testament had promised that the Messiah, the Son of God, was going to deliver. And he was delivering here right in full color right in front of them. But not only were there seven signs, there were also seven statements. I am statements. Now, if you were to say, like, I am, and fill in the blank, you would say probably, I'm, I'm a carpenter, I'm a, I'm a mechanic, I'm, a, I'm a, an accountant. I'm, you'd say whatever, whatever you are, that's how we use that statement. Like, it describes you. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, in Jesus' day, I am was a completely different statement. If you remember back the story of Moses, when Moses was there in front of the burning bush, he said, well, well who am I going to tell him to send me? And God spoke from the bush and he said, I am. It's sending me. Right? I am has always been, for Jews, it's always been a statement of God's identity. And here in the Gospel of John, John uses Jesus' words, these I am statements, to tell us, to point us, to remind us that this is the Son of God. That this is. So he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus did. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. And today we're going to look at when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. These all mean something. We pick up in the story, just kind of to, to take you back for a second. We pick up in the story in chapter 11 where in chapter 10, Jesus was on the run. <laughs> he slipped out of town, out of Jerusalem, because the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. Because he had said, I am the good shepherd. I am God, he had said. And they, when he said, I'm the good shepherd, they heard, he's saying he's God. That's why they wanted to kill him, right? They sought to kill him, but Jesus slipped away, and <clears throat> that's where we find ourselves today as we come into this. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend in this, in this time of change in the story where Jesus moves from his public ministry with his disciples, and he turns to a private ministry, is the way it's described, where he begins to, not, not the crowds anymore, now he's going to focus his attention on just his followers, just his disciples. So for the next ten chapters through the rest of the book, it's going to be Jesus' private ministry is how it's referred to. It's his private ministry. Those with, and, and today in this, in this transition zone, and next week and the week after, we're going to look at life, death, and the glory of God. Because that's what is co- talked about in these chapters, life and death and God's glory, how it's in there somehow and where we can find it. So that's where we are. Before we start, I just want to pray. You join me.
Lord, we ask you that you would speak to us today. Speak to us clearly that we might hear words of hope and promise and truth. That we might live for you in this new year. A life that's full of power. It's full of grace. It's full of love. We thank you. Amen. So this was a... uh, a unique week for me. This is a week that, like I've never had before. I had three funerals to attend this week. Um, I've never had like that many people connected to my life die in one in you know, one period of time. Um, <clears throat> each one was power. Each funeral service was powerful in its own way. Uh, the first one was was for Miss uh, Miss Betty. Many of you knew um, an artist, a gentle spirit. And her funeral reflected that. The second one was for a, a friend who was a great father, uh, who loved his kids, and he was all about anything his kids were about. Truly he was. He was all about them. And the one yesterday was for uh, a wife, mom, uh, a beautiful lady who was, uh, had a wonderful voice, uh, and she ran a fantastic business in our community. Each one told the story of the person's life in a unique way. Um, not one was better than another, but they, they were three different lives, and they told the story of how their life reflected that of Christ. And because they were all believers, they were all Christians, and uh, it was they were powerful. What makes a funeral unique to me is that it's a chance, it kind of forces you to think about life and death. It, like you don't, you can't go and not think about those things. Uh, your own mortality—they're <clears throat> important because it, it's a chance for us to stop and remember, not just the person that we're there for, but, but the people in our lives, the people who matter to us. Right? We we think about our families, we think about our friends, uh, the ones who are alive still. We think about those folks. Um, we think about those who've gone on already. You know, our parents or grandparents children for some of us, um, our neighbors, our spouses, uh, all those, and maybe that's why some of us don't like to go to funerals, because we've, we've lost those folks, and we don't want to kind of relive that anymore, and um, and I completely understand that. I'm really no different when it comes to that, but as I got to thinking, as I was at these funerals this week, um, I got to thinking about, you know, I was listening to the things that were said about people, how they were talked about and, and remembered, right, uh, by friends and family. And I got to thinking, like, I wonder how I'm going to be, like, what, what, what are people going to say at my funeral, right? <clears throat> I thought, well, maybe they'll talk about me being a husband, or maybe uh, a follower of Jesus, or a pastor, or a coach, or uh, I don't know. Well, and I'm not going to ask, because I know some of you would have, like, we're not going to pass the microphone around here today. I told John A. already, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. No, we're not. No, Brad, mute them all. <laughs> because what struck me was something that was talked about at, at Miss Betty's funeral. It wasn't talked about, I don't think, from the, the pulpit. I don't remember. But, uh, but she had shared with others how she wished that earlier in her life she had started doing the, thing, do, doing the, the one thing that I think everybody there was most impressed by was her painting. 
Like, everybody was in awe. I, I knew she painted, but I didn't know she painted like that. Like, I thought she painted more like me. Or, you know, like a, or the spray can. You know, I didn't know what she painted, but I didn't know she painted like that. I mean, like, beautiful works of, I mean, real art. I was amazed by it. And she wished that she had done more of that. The thing that we all admired about her, and which probably made it more unique, her artistic gift. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm, not, what I'm not talking about here. I'm not talking about missed opportunities or squandered. You know, like, I'm not talking about that. that I wish I would have, could have, should have, all that. That's not what I'm getting at today. What I'm talking about is, is how we, uh, the difference between aspirations and actuality. What do I mean by that? I don't know if I have, no, I don't. Maybe, what if what we remember most about people isn't what they wanted us to remember? I mean, I got, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about that. Like, what if, what if we missed it? The thing that they wanted most for us to remember about them. I mean, it was all good stuff. But what if, what if we missed it? Like, I, my, I've told you about my favorite uncle, I believe, haven't I? My Uncle Francis, uh, who was who taught me how to play cards and play Monopoly and play Risk and, and all the, he taught us, all his nephews uh, and, his, and his kids how to play these games, but he cheated like crazy. <laughs> you could never beat him. He would always be the banker or whatever, you know, and, and he would all, he won every, all the time. He was dealing off the bottom or he was slipping hundreds out of the bank. I mean, you name it, he would do it. My Uncle Francis, when you, when you ask me about him and Somebody hears this recording. I, I love him. Believe me, he was a fantastic uncle. And he would come home from work, and I'd be sitting in his, in his chair. I've already eaten his food. He'd do nothing but say, hey, boy, what you doing? Like, he would love me. He loved me, no matter what. But he would cheat you like anybody when it came to cards or when it came to Monopoly. And so it's probably kind of wrong, but when I think about my Uncle Francis, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. He probably didn't want that. <laughs> like, he doesn't want me to think. Oh, he was a cheater. <laughs> I couldn't believe he cheated me like that. That's not what I... And I don't think any... So, so how can we live our life so that so the things that we want to be remembered for will be remembered for, right? I have a list of seven things that I want to be remembered for. I do. And you might say, well, what are they? And I'm not going to tell you because that would defeat the purpose. Like I could put them on a business card and hand them out, you know, or I could get T-shirts made, you know, <laughs> like... But I'm not, that, that would not work. It wouldn't be the, that's not the point. The point is that, that, that that's what I want to be remembered for, but it's got to be real, right? It's got to be true. It's got to be true. So, so as I was attending these funerals, it's got me thinking that the only way to be known for something is to live for it while you're alive. Like that's what you're known for is what you live for. And so New Year's, you make resolutions and, you know, those are aspirations, right? You aspire to something this year. Like, I want, I want this to be this year, for sure. Things we hope to do or hope to become. But we all know that they don't happen unless we do something about them, right? They don't just happen on their own. But I need to live these qualities out now if I want to be live, known for it tomorrow. I'm not making a resolution. Instead, several years ago, Michelle and I, we started doing something different. We take a word for the year. Like, that's our word for the year. And we just, we try to build that word into, like she has one, I have one. And we just try to put it into everything we do. And for me, the word is this year for 2020 is now. You may think that's a dumb word. 
<laughs> but, but if you knew me, that's a good word because I am a procrastinator. I'm like, well, I'll do that tomorrow. I'm like, like those words are important, those seven things, they're important. But, and tomorrow when I get out, I will do one. I will pay attention to one of those. No, no. Like, why well, put it off? Why, like, I'll call them when, I'm, when I have time. A better, it'll be better tomorrow. No, now. Now. Not, not later. Start now. So that's my word. It may sound great. But it's still an aspiration. It's still something that I'm hoping for in the future, right? It's still not a. It's not actually me yet. You may be thinking, sitting there thinking, "That's great, Pastor." But what in the world does any of this have to do with the Gospel of John? It's a great question, Ed. <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> you see, John wrote for us to know who Jesus was. That's why John wrote the Gospel of John. Jesus didn't leave it to us to figure it out who he was. Jesus. In the Gospel of John, wanted to make it crystal clear, this is who I am. And so he, he did things, he acted in accordance with who his identity, so when he fed the 5,000, he said, I'm the bread of life. When he healed a man who was blind, he said, I am the light of the world. So he's connecting. The things I'm doing do explicitly connect to who I am, to my identity. These miracles, you see, weren't just miracles. They weren't. They were declarations. They were declarations of Emmanuel, God with us. He's right here, right in front of you, he said. So today I want to look at another one of these signs, another one of these proclamations. But I encourage you, before we really jump into it, to spend some time thinking about what do you want to be known for. If you haven't, maybe you have already thought about it. What do you want to be known for? Maybe you've planned out your funeral and you've scripted it for the pastor. This is, this is what, how, like, and he's not going to use that, by the way. I just want to say... <laughs> But, but maybe you should, maybe you could spend some time thinking, how about how you want to be remembered? Is it forgiving? Generous? Encouraging? Faithful? Servant? Loving? Maybe those words describe what you aspire, want to be known for. And I'll just ask you, are you becoming that person today? Are you becoming that now? Maybe you want to take one of those words, or maybe a different word, and let it be your word for the year. Like, that will be what I'm going to seek to live into in the, this year. I don't think resolutions are bad if you make them. A lot of times we don't make them because we worry about breaking them, but, or not keeping them. But I don't think they're bad to want to, to grow closer into who I'm supposed to be. That's not a bad thing. It's good to make resolutions. It's good to hold each other accountable to them. It's a good thing. It always has been. So, enough of that. Remember, we're in, uh, Jesus has kind of run out of Jerusalem. He's, he's, he got pushed, ran out of town. They were trying to kill him in chapter 10. He's gone a few miles away to escape. And, and here we have the news of Lazarus delivered to him from some friends. We're in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. If you've got a Bible around you, uh, that's where we are. You can, there'll be some scriptures here on the screen, but not all of it for sure. It's a long chapter. But uh, we do pick it up in chapter 3, or verse 3 of chapter 11. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that, through, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. What? Huh? Like, excuse me? Then he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. 
But Rabbi, they said, just a few days ago, the Jews, were, they tried to stone you. And yet you're going back? They don't understand. See, Jesus knew right away, when he got the news, Lazarus is sick, he knew, I know, what's, this is gonna, I know what I'm going to do. He had a plan already. Immediately, he knew what he was, how he was going to approach this. Because he said, this sickness will not end in death. He knew what he was about to do. But in God's glory. What he was doing was not, was not for anybody else. He wasn't doing it for Mary and Martha. He was doing it as a sign of who he was in Christ. You see, he was intentional from the very beginning. As soon as he got word, he knew what he was going to do. This wasn't a response to, to frantic friends. This was intentional on Jesus' part. But not only did he know what he was about to do, he knew the outcome of it, that the glory of God would result. He knew what was happening here. He knew the outcome. Now, don't misunderstand me, because I don't believe that that the glory of God is the purpose, that God doesn't put us through difficulty and pain and suffering and all that just for for, for God's to shine. But I do believe that His glory results whenever we draw close to Him in the midst of our suffering and pain. His, his, his glory does, is result from that. I don't think He puts us through it for His enjoyment. Or that, or that He doesn't know we're going through it. He knows. Even if you don't love Him, even if you don't claim to have a relationship with Him, He knows what you're going through. And He's hoping that you'll call out to Him. That's not what I'm talking about today, though. Although that would be a good sermon. <clears throat> See, the disciples, they had an idea about what was going to happen as well. The disciples knew that they were about to get killed. <laughs> they knew that, they, that we just, we barely got out of there just a couple days ago, and now you're going to back? Like, really? Jesus tells them in verse 10, he says, guys, we've got work to do. The sun's still up. There's still work to be done. Let's go. Well, Verse 11, he tells them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And so they thought, just like you and I would, well, if he's asleep, let's let him sleep. Let's just let him, let him sleep it off. He's going to get better because they're going to kill us, Jesus. Let's, why are we going to go and poke the bear? Let's just like let him, let him be. He's, if he's asleep, let's let him. Jesus says, no, no, no. I don't mean that kind of sleep, he tells them. He's dead dead and they got that then but they still wrestled with their security and that's when Thomas one of the disciples he said let's go that we may die with him they resolved that okay Jesus is going to do this we're with him whatever he's doing we're going to do if you know the rest of the gospel you know in the, just in a few days from the story where we're at right now uh, in just a few days Jesus is going to be arrested and put on trial beaten and crucified and during all of that, these same folks who were, okay, let's go with him, they were nowhere to be found. They were nowhere to be found. What happened to that courage? What happened to that confidence, that boldness? We'll see in the next coming weeks. But it obviously it didn't last. It didn't last. So Jesus heads on his way. He's on his way back to see Lazarus and the family. And on the way, Martha meets him. Now, if you don't remember who Mary and Martha were, these two sisters of Lazarus, just to kind of catch you up real quick, Martha was the dutiful one. 
you remember Jesus was at their house one time preaching or teaching, you know, and, and Martha's in the kitchen cleaning and cooking and carrying on and, and fretting around, getting everybody refilling their sweet tea and, and getting them some more fried shrimp and all that kind of stuff, you know. And Well, they probably didn't eat shrimp, but, <laughs> but, but you know, they, she's being the host, right? And finally she gets tired and Mary is just sitting in there listening to Jesus. And what did she say? She said, Jesus, Mary ain't doing nothing. Can you tell her to help me? And Jesus says, oh, Martha, Martha. Right? That's what he said, Martha, Martha. Can't you see that Mary's doing the more important things? Well, Martha learned the lesson, right? Because here she is. Her brother has died. The house is full of people that they bring food over and they come over to cry and sing and carry on. And Martha, what does she do? She leaves them. She leaves them. She leaves where she should be. And she goes out to meet Jesus. She learned her lesson. But the best place to be is with Jesus. And what did she do when she met him? Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad to see you. Would you come back home? Come, come to the house. The house is full of people and there's food. And, and oh, Jesus, we're so glad to have you here. Nope, that's not what she says at all. She says in verse 21, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, if you'd only been here, it wouldn't have happened. Now, we could, like, really come down hard on Martha. But this is our response, isn't it? This is, this is exactly how we respond when, when a loved one is sick or dies, even worse. God, where were you? Where are you? Why would you let this happen? If you'd have only stopped them, they wouldn't, have hit, they wouldn't have had that accident. If you'd only turned them around, they wouldn't have run away. If you'd only... All those onlys, ifs. We do it, right? I mean, you and I, these are our words. Like, Lord, if you'd have been here... Where were you? There's another story in the Bible that that tells kind of a similar story as as this in the Old Testament, the story of Job. If you don't know Job, it's it's more than just a a parable. Uh, It's actually a true story of a a man who was a righteous man, the Scriptures refer to him as, a righteous man who loved God, and and God knew him by name, right? He was a wealthy man, and and, uh, Satan goes to God and says, "Uh, I see your servant, Job, uh, he will turn he'll turn away from you, and Jesus says, or God says, no, he'll never turn away. And he said, oh, Satan says, oh yeah, if he loses all his wealth, he'll for sure turn away. If he loses his family, he'll turn away. God says, no, he's not turning away from me. Prove it, Satan says. And so Satan goes and remove, takes all his wealth, takes all his family, and destroys his whole life. Leaves him with a with a skin disease that's excruciatingly painful. Job never wavers. Never wavers. His friends come around him and say, Oh, man, you really messed up. You're a... What did you do? Like, how did you do that to... Like, what, what did you do? Like, you don't even know what you did. You've been so bad. Like, look, you must have done something truly awful to lose all of this. No. No, I didn't, he says. His wife says, Oh, Job, would you just curse God and die? It's his wife, the encourager in his family. Right? And then Job breaks. Job breaks. Eventually, the pressures just. He says this. He says, "Oh that I would. Oh that I had one to hear me." Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. He says. Oh that I had the indictment written by my adversary. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? He asks God. What did I do? Like, like you're putting me through this. Like I'm. I'm 
this, this shouldn't be. What did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong, right? Same question that Martha and them are doing, asking Jesus. What was God's response to Job? Do you remember? Job lays it all out, and God says, I'm God. Not, not Job, I understand your pain. He didn't try to eat him like, Job, I know this must be hard for you. Like, he didn't know. He just said, Job, I'm God. That's it. Now, that doesn't strike you as very compassionate, right? It doesn't, like, when you hear that, if you're really going through it, and God would say to you, but I'm God. You'd be like, huh, yeah, okay. And at first, that doesn't sound like a blessing, but, but when you stop and think about it, I am God, just spoke to him, encouraged him, like, was there in the midst of his pain. He wasn't alone like he thought he was. He, God didn't, wasn't ignoring him. All of that was actually hopeful. It was actually a hopeful thing. Like he did find hope in knowing that God knew him. That God knew his experience. It's, I am God is all he said. Similar to what Jesus responded to Martha when, when she asked, Why did you let this happen? In verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. Do you believe this? Not do you understand, but do you believe it? See, our hope isn't based on the chance of a miracle, that we might be healed, that we, that we might be raised to a new life, that we might live forever in eternity. It's not based on a hope in the future that might happen. Our hope is based on a truth. Our hope isn't based on some aspirational concept of, of, of anything or, or some spiritual platitude like, well, they're in a better place or, or you know, they're, they're walking with the Lord now. No, it's not based on any kind of aspirational hope like that. It's based on a fact, a reality that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. That's what our hope is based on. The actual truth. The actual truth. Not one day, but now. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, today. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that has that's important for you. It's very important for you to understand that. Martha replied, Yes, I know that you are the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. I know that you're the one who is to come and to save us. But see, John wants us to know that, that He is the Messiah. That He is the Messiah. Mary comes and... Oh, Martha leaves and gets her sister and says, Jesus is here. Right? Mary, the one who was at Jesus' feet when He was teaching. And what does she do? She runs and falls at His feet again. Right? The last place we saw her was at His feet. And she says, Jesus, I love you. No, she doesn't say that. She says, if you'd only been here, our brother wouldn't have died. The same thing. Again. But then something powerful happens. Something truly powerful happens in that moment. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked, and they replied, Come and see. And Jesus wept. And Jesus wept. You see, what I find is really important here to, to me is this word that he was deeply moved, troubled in spirit. Some Bible translations, I don't know if yours says it this way or not, but it says that he was angry. That Jesus was angry. And his anger led him to do these things. His anger is just anger. His righteous anger. His holy discontent, I've heard people refer to it as. That, that this wasn't right. See, it wasn't, it wasn't Lazarus' death that troubled him. Because Jesus already said that, that he believed in me, so he's going to live again. Like, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. I'm not, I'm not, he's not angry about Lazarus. Lazarus is alive. What's he angry about? See, he's, I, I truly believe it. Well, look at verse 33. When, the, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's what made him angry. That's what troubled him was was that people he loved, his friends, that people would be, that would mourn, that would be upset about death, that death would do that to people. See, death was not part of God's plan. Death was not God's intent. He created us to be in a relationship with Him and a relationship with each other for eternity, that we were created for eternity. Not death. And He was angry that death had come into the world through our sin, right? That's what he's angry about. Is that people he loves are having to deal with this because of sin. That sin separates from us from God and God's purpose for our lives. And, and that's not how it ought to be. We were created for life. And anything else short of that makes Jesus angry. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Belief, you see. Belief in promises. Belief in, in who Jesus says He is. You see, <coughs> Jesus said that He was the Messiah, the Son of God, that, that I am the resurrection, I am the life. That that is what this is all about. That that fact should make a difference in the way that we live. Earlier he said, if you believe in me and do the things that I show you, right? That belief is, is about more than just knowing about it. It's about living our lives in such a way that, that, that show the world that, that he is, that we believe. It's not, a, it's not a head knowledge. It's a life knowledge. It's a, not a life awareness. Belief in his promises. Not who we hope him to be one day, but who he is. Resurrection and the life. Belief in Him leads to eternal life. I love Christmas movies, especially the, but not Hallmark Christmas movies. I really, they're they're like all the same movie, but um, but a lot of and we watch them at our house. We watch Christmas movies all the time, so um, they're a regular fixture in our house. But my wife is always an interesting one to watch a movie again with. Uh, because the first time, if it's a suspenseful or a, or a very if a scary part comes on, she won't watch it. She'll get up and leave the room, or she'll cover her face, or she'll. I've, 
I've seen her in the theater to put her purse in front of her face because she will not watch it. And so what happens when you watch it again? Same thing, because she doesn't know what happened. So, so that you can watch it the second and third time, and she still won't watch it because she's never seen that part where they actually survive, right? It's just it was a bad crash or, or whatever it was. But she's like, oh, no, I'm not watching that. That's too scary. I think that's the way a lot of, we, a lot of us live our lives. See, Jesus says, I'm telling you how it ends. I'm telling you the whole story. I'm the resurrection. I am the life. Like, you don't have to wonder. Like, you don't have to wonder what's going to happen. I'm telling you what's going to happen. You're going to live if you believe in me. That's it. You're not going to face death. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And it starts now, the moment we believe. The moment we believe, we begin to live in eternity. You get that? The moment you accept Christ as your Savior, you begin to live in eternity. Right? It's as though you were one day, you, you, were, you were standing here in Rock Hall, and all of a sudden you put your trust in Jesus, and you put a foot into eternity. It's like, so now you're standing in both places at once. Literally. Literally. You, you bring eternity into the present. You bring the future into the present in that way, because I know where I'm going. I'm, so I know the future. Right? And I, I, I'm, I'm here. I can't deny that. But I know what's coming. How does that change the way we live our lives if, if we know the end of the story, right? Like, we don't have to hide our face from the scary parts. Right? We don't have to... We can, we can stand in the scary parts because we know the end of the story. I'm the resurrection and the life. Last, uh, win- last winter, February, I guess, Leaders from your church and the different churches here in Rock Hall, we got together and talked about where we felt like God was, was calling us as followers. And we came up with a lot of good stuff that we thought God was leading us towards. And one of those things was this, came out of it was this statement. Every member of our church, having experienced the real presence and power of God, will be moving out of our churches and into ministry in our community that we might see God glorified in the homes and lives of our neighbors who without faith too easily slip and fall into a cycle of hopelessness. You see, our goal was that every person who calls this home, every person who who comes and worships with us would experience God, would know the hope. And when I say hope, I'm talking about the fact of the risen Lord, the, the life and resurrection that's found in Jesus. Everyone would know that. Would know the hope of having their future secure. And knowing that would move out into ministry in our community. Because I, we said later on in this document that we wanted every individual, every person in our community to experience the love of Christ through our ministry. And we want to touch every life. Every life. Not, not most of them, not the ones who live right around me, but we wanted to impact, we want to, and we believe God is calling us to touch every life in this community. It would be different if we were in Baltimore or D.C. or you know, big city, but we're not. We're here. We have the ability to impact every life. We could do it this afternoon if we just decided to, if we're organized enough, right? We could touch every person here in this community today. That's, that's what we feel God calling us to do, is to impact, not just to touch their lives, but to have an impact on their life. Every person. I got, I got to tell you, though, your pastor can't do this. 
That doesn't come as a surprise for some of you. <laughs> but I'll say this also, that the leaders of your church, they can't do it either. They can't do it. And, and if we were to round up all the people who call Rock Hall Church home, if we were to round up everybody who's ever been through here and kind of said, oh yeah, that's my church, we were to get all those folks and put them all in the room, we'd ask them, we'd all tell them all to, to go and do this. And they'd say, oh yeah, well, they couldn't do it either. They couldn't do it. Because which one of us is going to set someone free from an addiction? Which one of us is going is to inspire kids to a group of kids? to read on grade level. Like, like it's going to take more than just a couple of us working at an after-school tutoring thing. And, and even more than a couple of us can't do it because this is the work of God to, tra- to change lives, to, to impact families. That's an act of God. That's not something that you can do that we can do even together. It's only something that Christ can do to change people's hearts. But it takes us surrendering to Him. It takes us Believing that He is who He says He is. It takes us to believe He is who He says He is. The resurrection and the life. Today. So I'll just leave you with the question that He had for Martha. Do you believe this? I don't, I don't know that you can believe this and it not change you radically, dramatically. It has to, to reorient your life. And so if you, if you feel like you believe it, but your life hasn't really changed, I, I really encourage you this year to spend some time, do I really believe that my life has changed because of it. I'd like to pray for you. God, we love you.